If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me to our sermon text, which is found in Galatians chapter 5. It's on page 916 of the Black Pew Bible. We're continuing today our series on the Holy Spirit, and we're looking at this third set, or second set of three of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Tim started us last week with love, joy, peace. Let me give you a, an organizing way to remember the fruit of the Spirit. This, is, this comes from John Stott. He said the first three, love, joy, peace, are about a Christian's relationship with God, that they're primarily about how we are before the Lord. These next three, which we're going to talk about today, are about our relationships with each other, okay, patience, kindness, and goodness. And the last three that we're going to look at next week are really about our relationship with ourselves. What does it mean to be by yourself before the Lord and to think about your own identity and all the rest? And so today we're going to look at these middle three about our relationships with each other. I'll begin at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen? Let me ask you this on Mother's Day. Have you ever been told to mind your manners? Uh, if you have, likely that came from your mother or your grandmother, somebody like that. Mind your manners. When they told you that, what were they referring to? What are manners? Uh, I, don't, I know for me, uh, my meemaw and my mother too, but my meemaw, especially my mom's mom, she was one who always drilled my manners into me. And here's her number one rule. Do not wear your hat at the dinner table. Did you ever have that rule as a kid? I mean, I could just barely hit the seat if I still had my hat on and she would be, get that hat off. We don't wear hats at the dinner table. It's bad manners. My mother would come back behind her and tell me, Please, thank you, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir. Those things got drilled into me so much so that you probably hear me still saying it today to you. Even if you're not older than me, I say it to you. Because I just have it drilled deep in me, the manners that mom, dad, grandma told me. Now think about it. Manners kind of help the world go around because it helps keep us civil. But manners are only surface level. When you look at the three things in this list that we want to look at today, patience, kindness, and goodness, 
what you see about those is they are far more than surface level, right? These are deep things. In fact, these are issues and matters of the heart. Uh, in, some degree, in some ways, you can see patience, you can see goodness, and you can see kindness. But in a deeper way, there's something going on below the surface that you'll never be able to see. And the Bible says that is the level at which the Holy Spirit comes to work in our lives. Anybody in here, if I asked you, do you want your relationships to improve? Is there anybody that would say no? Right, nobody. Everybody would say, absolutely, tell me more. Well, here's the thing, and this is what this is teaching us, this fruit of the Spirit. If God is going to change your relationships, he's going to first change you. Did you hear that? He's not going to be worried about the other person. He's worried about you right now. Um, God will worry about the other person with the other person, but in terms of you, he's going to worry about you. It's your heart and my heart that needs to be renovated, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. He renovates hearts by planting his own character within it so that our relationships begin to look different in the lines of patience, kindness, and goodness. If you look at your bulletin, I want to just walk you through those three fruit very briefly on each one. And each time I'm going to ask a different question, okay? So if you look at your bulletin, you'll see this. Patience helps us understand why we need the Holy Spirit to lead us in relating to others. Kindness helps us to identify a major sign that the Spirit is leading us. And then finally, goodness helps us to see a little bit about how the Spirit leads us. In our relationships. Let's look first of all at patience and why we need the Holy Spirit to help us. Maybe you've noticed this, but uh, even easy things to do become harder when you have resistance. Everybody with me there? Uh, I tried to think of the easiest thing that you can imagine. I thought of tubing down a lazy river. That's very easy. Everybody agree? It takes just about as much physical exertion as laying on a lazy boy or laying on your bed. It's very simple. You just kick back and the river takes you down, slowly but surely. You might have to worry about bumping into somebody, but that's about it. Now, turn it around, though. What if all of a sudden you have to take that same tube on that same river and go back upstream a couple hundred yards? (laughs) Right? You don't have a paddle. You just got these. How hard does that easy task become? I mean, tenfold. I guarantee you there's nobody in this room who would not be able to float down the river. But many of us would have a hard time, probably all of us, would have a very, very difficult time going 200 yards up the river. Resistance makes everything harder. Well, think about relationships this way. When the Bible says we should should be patient, and when the Bible says God is patient, it means... We should, as God does, endure in treating people well even when they offer resistance. Even when they resist us, and, which also can happen, we begin to resist them. It can go both ways. Resistance rises from within us. Resistance rises from them. Either way, it makes relationships really, really hard. Amen? And so God says, try on my patience. Now, you've got to understand what patience means. I think we cheapen all the words in this list of the fruit of the Spirit so often. And today I'm going to to sound like a broken record a little bit because each one of the words I'm going to try to give you a little bit more expansive view of what it is. 
Patience in the Bible is literally long-suffering. That's what it means, to suffer long. To endure resistance, like going upstream, over a long haul because you're determined to be kind. You're, You're determined to treat the person well as you would want to be treated. Now, the scriptures are full of references to this word and God's character. God is patient. You may not have noticed it, but we've already read twice in our service today two statements that said God was patient. You might not have noticed it, but in Exodus 34 and in the call to worship, Psalm 86, it says this, The Lord is slow to anger. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, slow to anger, that's three words in English. It's translating two words in Hebrew, which translates the one word in Greek, which we have here in our text, meaning patience. In Hebrew, it's a beautiful picture. Uh, It's the picture, it literally says, he is long in nostrils. He's got long nostrils. Did you know that about God? He's got long nostrils, if you will. It was a picture. Uh, Think about when someone gets angry. I don't know if I can do it, but the nostrils begin to flare as their face gets red and they start shaking and the nostrils are flaring out. When the Bible says God is long of nostril, that means his nostrils don't flare quickly. They're long, and so it takes time for those things to flare. Now, they do flare. God has anger. God has wrath. And the Bible speaks of many times where God expresses his anger and wrath. And yet God never has unjust anger. I mean, imagine that. Never unjust. Always justified. And he always exercises his anger in the perfect ways at the perfect time, never too soon, never too late, right on time, patient. He he doesn't jump right on people right away and smite them right when he could. Instead, he allows people and situations to play out so as to give them an opportunity to repent before his judgment and his wrath comes pouring out upon them. God is long in nostrils. Another uh, possible use of the word in Hebrew is referring to a bird that has long wings, a long wingspan. Um, Have you ever seen a bird with long wingspan? It's very awesome. A couple weeks ago, my family was sitting out in our backyard at sunset when all the birds are excited, and there was a hawk, beautiful hawk, uh, sitting on the top of a power pole in our backyard, and we were just marveling at it. Wow, how beautiful. Look at, look at the feathers, all the different colors. Majestic. As we were staring, down comes a bald eagle swooping over the top of the hawk to chase him away. Apparently, that was his pole. I don't know. Chased him down, and, and there goes the, the hawk right over the top of our heads, and then there comes the eagle. No higher than this ceiling above our heads, a bald eagle. Immediately, Stacy and I saluted and, oh, say, can you see? Yeah. No, we really didn't do that. But we did say, wow, because it, it has the wingspan of a man. It's, it's longer than my wingspan. It's big wingspan. And one of the things I noticed right away is the hawk had a smaller wingspan. It was able to get going faster, quicker. The eagle, though, it took a while. Slow at first, and then it got up. And so the hawk kind of went, you know, ahead of the eagle. The eagle eventually caught up because it took the eagle longer given the long wingspan. 
Scripture says God has long nostrils. God has a long wingspan. Yes, God is angry with the wicked. God is angry with wickedness. God hates sin. But God never has a short fuse, as we might say. He always allows the situations to develop, giving sufficient time that hope might be there. That there might be hope. That there might be an opportunity of escape. Paul said this about his own life, and I I believe all of us could say it as Christians. He says, before I became a Christian, I was a terrible person. I was a persecutor of the church. But when God revealed his son to me, he showed me his perfect patience. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. God showed me his perfect patience. All those years that I had blasphemed him. All those years I had troubled his people and killed them and chased them all around the world, Paul says, and God still hung with me. He didn't smite me. He gave me room so that on that one day when I was going to Damascus, Jesus could meet me and I could be converted to faith in him. Well, Paul is here saying, that same Paul is saying, look, the Holy Spirit is given to you, O Christian, so that that same patience of God can be resident in you. God makes the impossible possible. It's not possible for me to be patient like God is patient. I mean, just think of how patient he's been with me. And yet, by the Holy Spirit, God enables me to be truly patient. In the same way that he's patient, at least, if not to the same degree, at least in the same way. Now, this is important. I think we have to be careful that we don't get deceived by some of the common counterfeits of patience like everybody knows the person with the short fuse who attacks people immediately that person doesn't have patience everybody knows that and everybody's like what an impatient person but we tend to think or imagine that if someone is just chill or has a quiet disposition that automatically that makes them patient but let me tell you that's not the case I say that as someone who is pretty chill In general, I'm a pretty relaxed person. And it can be very easy for me to think of myself as patient. But really what I do when someone resists me, I can use the technique of avoidance. Okay, you're going to resist me. I'm just going to ignore you. Well, that's not patience. That's, That's just as short a fuse as lashing out. I'm just doing it in a different way. I can also sometimes turn the attack in on myself and just try to diffuse the situation and make peace by saying, oh, I'm sorry, it must be my fault. I know it was me that did it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's just make peace and be friends. Well, guess what? That's also not patience. That's just being unjust. That's just acting like wrong's not wrong, right? Real patience, which the Holy Spirit works in us, is God's kind of patience. It sees the wrong for what it is, and yet it continues to show up. It continues to show up with a willingness to love, a willingness to forgive, a willingness to reconcile. This can only come if you have a personal relationship with God in your life through Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus that our sins are paid for. That's the patience of God. It is through Jesus that the Holy Spirit is given. That's the patience of God to bear with us and to impress the character trait of his patience onto our heart. So that slowly over time, do you believe this? Your fuse can get longer. 
And it won't just be because you're getting old and chilling out, right? It will be because the Holy Spirit is putting the character of Christ over the top of you and shaping you into his image. Wow. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Now, secondly, I want you to look at kindness. Because here we see a major sign that the Holy Spirit really is at work in a person. Now, right away, someone might say, how is that a sign? Uh, I, I know people who are kind and they don't have Jesus. There are kind people who don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in Jesus at all, and yet they're the kindest people I know. Well, again, how are you defining kindness? That's the question. There is a type of kindness, of course, that is just good manners. It's just minding your you know, manners and acting in a civil way to people, uh, not lashing out at people, and, and we call it kindness. But in the Bible, there is a deeper, a better, fuller definition of kindness, which is modeled on God's own kindness. In fact, it was this kind of unique brand of kindness that marked Christians from the beginning. Interesting fact. In Greek, the word kind and the word Christ are only one letter apart. Christos and Krestos. Christos, Krestos. Uh, therefore, the word Christian and the word kindness are just one letter apart. And so in the early days of the church, people called Christians by both names. Did you know that? They would call them Christians and they would also call them kindness people. Because the church was known for a unique brand of kindness. And here's, here's what it looked like. The church didn't just care for people who were advantageous to them. The church cared for abandoned babies who were left for dead. The church cared for lepers. The church cared for the sick. The church cared for the poor, the blind, the lame, even as Jesus did. Get, catch this. The church prayed for, in their church services, the very people who were trying to kill them. It's that kind of kindness that people looked at and said, those Christians, they're kindness people. Those Christos, they're Christos. Uh, they are a different kind of kind. And, it, and had they been able to listen to the Christian message at that time, they would have seen why. Because the God that loves us in Christ and the God who dwells within us is also kind to an immense degree. In the Old Testament, there's probably no word used more to describe God than the word kindness. It's translated there, steadfast love or loving kindness. That's my favorite translation of it, loving kindness. It translates the Hebrew word chesed. It's a fun word to say. Chesed. It's God's covenant love, his marriage level love, where he, he takes his creation and he takes his people especially and he bonds himself. He binds himself to them like in a marriage and says, no matter what, for rich or poor, sickness or health, I'm with you. I'm committing myself for your good no matter how you may treat me in return, no matter what you may be able to give back to me in return. I know you're not going to even be able to pay me back. And yet I still am going to love you just the same with my infinite love, with my infinite goodness. That's the definition of kindness. Mankind, human beings, were made in the image of God. Which means when we say someone's kind, what we ought to mean is someone is like God in his kindness. Well, now you see why in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, it says, There is no one good, no, not one. 
And let me tell you, the word good, I actually don't know why they translate it good, because the word good there is the same word in Galatians 5.22 for kindness. In other words, Romans 3.12 literally says, there is no one truly kind among men and women. No, not one. Meaning, people are good at loving people who love them back. They are. People are good at being civil with people who are civil to them. People, we are all very good at giving to people that we know will give back to us, throwing parties for people that will honor us. We are not very good at giving to those who can't give back or at loving those who give hatred back. That's what the Bible means. There is not anyone kind. There's no one like God in this way, even though we were made for this. And so what does God do? He sends his son in kindness. Yet, yet a further revelation of the Hesed love of God is that Jesus Christ came for sinners. He died for us, not by looking forward and seeing us on our best day and saying, okay, there's a guy with potential, let me die for him. He looked forward and saw us in our ugliness, in our unworthiness, on our worst day, doing the worst thing we've ever done. And Jesus says, I'll take that on myself. Why will you do that, Jesus? Because I love them. Because I love my Father. Because my Father loves me. And we want to share our kind of love with those people. Kindness. And when the Holy Spirit enters your life, if you can believe it this morning, His job number one is to turn us, remember, there's no one kind, into kind people. Not just mannerly, not just civil, but kind. In God's way of kindness. Jesus taught it this way. He says, do you love those who love you? Good job. Everybody does that. Do you want to be like me? Do you want to be like my father? Come with me and I'll show you what to do. I'm going to show you how to love for real. How to be really kind. Let me Rule your life. Let me save your life. And then something real miraculous is going to happen in you as you transform into the image of the God who loves you. That's the miracle. Don't you know, lots of people are chasing the work of the Holy Spirit and they're chasing it in the wrong places. Often we think, when we think the Holy Spirit, we think of sensational things. The Holy Spirit makes me speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit makes me feel warm and fuzzy. The Holy Spirit heals people you know, as I touch them. We think that's the miracle that we should be chasing, and that's how we're going to get the Holy Spirit. Listen, yes, God did those things in the New Testament, and all those things were wonderful, but they were there to verify the trustworthiness of the Word. And what does the Word say? It doesn't say Jesus died on the cross so that we might all speak with tongues. It doesn't say that anywhere. But it does say Jesus died on the cross that we all might love that we all might have joy and peace and all these fruit this is the real miracle this morning I just hope that that y'all will get more desperate for the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and that you'll get more of a sense of what that work entails Uh, the spirit is not here just to do wow wowing things to the eye he's not here just to do wowing things to the feelings he's here to change your heart in a profound way, 
I know everybody in the room can identify one relationship, two relationships, three relationships in which you're being called to show Hesed love. Y'all got them? You don't have to say them out loud who they are, especially if they're in here right now. But I know you got them. Well, guess what? If you're a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit with you in that. That same source of the love that God has shown you is there for you to draw on as you go towards that person that's just so hard. It's like swimming upstream. And yet Jesus says, come with me, I'm going to show you how it's done. Let me do a real miracle within your heart and within your soul. Let the world know us once again as the kindness people. Right? The people who loved the way Jesus loved. That leads us to our final thing, goodness. This helps us to see a little bit about how the Spirit goes about his work. The word good might be the most abused of all three of the words we looked at today. Uh, What are some of the things we use the word good to describe? Just think about that. Good morning. That was a good piece of cake. You're a good mother. Good day. It's all good. We use it in every conceivable way. In fact, that's such a wide range of things that the word good can almost sort of lose its meaning from time to time. When the Bible says God is good, which it does all the time, routinely, I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. When the Bible says God is good, it means this. God is goodness itself. There would be no such thing as goodness if it weren't for God. I talked about this a little bit last Sunday night, but everything in this life that you might call good, whether it's the piece of cake or the day or the morning or your mother or whatever it is you call good, all of that is good because God has taken some of his goodness and put it into that thing or that person. Did you realize that? That good thing that you experienced, that is because the goodness of God has been shared. In fact, that's the nature of God. He's always been sharing. I mean, why did God create the earth in the first place? Have you ever thought about that? That's a mind-blowing question. Why Why didn't he just do what he was always doing? Why did he create the world? Because he wanted to share his goodness with creatures. He didn't have to, but he wanted to. And that he has been doing from the beginning of creation. He never stops flowing out goodness to everything. He gives it to inanimate things like pieces of cake and flowers and things like that. And he gives it to people like mothers and other things that are just good, especially to his people so that the whole world might say, oh God, in this goodness I taste but the outer corners of the robes of your goodness just the outer corner of your robe here how good must you be if this little tiny thing of a moment is this good do you ever think that way when you sit down to supper I hope you do C.S. Lewis called it tracing the sunbeams back to the sun you gotta do that you gotta trace the 
the goodness of created things back to the Creator rather than fixating only on the created thing. So that you can get your heart full of the goodness of God. God is always like a fountain pouring out goodness upon the world. Now, He does that willingly, which is a part of the definition of goodness. God does not share His goodness because He has to, because He doesn't. God does not share His goodness because somebody else told Him to, because no one tells God to do anything. God does it because he wants to. Did you know everything God has ever shared with you, he did because he wanted to share it with you? Say, well, I I don't know. I have a hard time believing that, Stan, because it often feels like God is begrudging. Well, well, listen to this. James chapter 1. God gives generously to all without reproach. Generously to all without reproach. Here's what it looks like to give with reproach. All right, yeah, here's the $5, son. Next time, don't lose your $5 so you don't have to use mine. That's reproach. I I gave my $5, but along with my $5, I gave a side of what? Ugliness, small-mindedness, stinginess. The Bible says God gives no such thing. There is never a hint of it in God. When he gives, he gives with a smile, so to speak. He gives with a heart full of joy. Did y'all know God is happy? Did y'all know that? That God loves being God? That God loves doing what God does? God is never forced. God is never controlled by anything outside of his own glorious self. So when God gives of his goodness, he expresses the most joyful thing in his heart. Which is why Jesus says to us, y'all, I'm telling you this, you're not going to believe me, but I'm telling you, it is more blessed to give than receive. And every time my whole life that I've heard that, I've always thought, really? Shouldn't there be an asterisk beside that, you know, like with a footnote? Sometimes, or, you know, it is mostly more blessed to give than receive. Or for certain people. I've always felt that way because it does, on the the surface, seem like such an untrue statement because, man, I like to receive. Do you? It, It makes me feel happy to receive things. And yet Jesus knew better. He he knew something different because he has in himself the fullness of the kindness and goodness of God. He is more happy in giving than he is in receiving. And so the Bible says when he went to the cross, he went for joy. He went for joy to the cross. The Bible says when he came into this world to save us, he came most willingly. Most willingly. It is more blessed, more happy to give than it is to receive. And when the Holy Spirit comes into us, this is part of how he changes your heart so that you relate to people differently. He takes a little bit of the joy of God in giving to you and he puts it into your heart so that you might learn the joy of giving to others. He lets you taste a little bit of his joy through the Holy Spirit so that you can then express that joy in giving to others. That's what happens when you're converted. When you become a Christian, the Spirit moves in and gives you 
part of the assurance of God's love and the joy that comes with it so that you could then be a joyful giver like he has been to you. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Man was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. He had everything everybody wants. And Jesus said to him, sell everything you have and then come and follow me and then you'll have treasure in heaven. You'll have treasure. If you get rid of everything, you'll have treasure. And everybody has always read that story and said, oh Lord Jesus, don't ask me to do that. Let it be just him. Not me, not now. Wait till I'm about to die. Right? Because deep down inside, we believe that Jesus is ripping that man off. Don't we? That's a good, this is a good question to ask yourself. Do you believe Jesus is asking him to do something terrible? Something awful? Or not? Because the reality is, if we saw things from God's perspective, Jesus is asking this man to upgrade. He is asking him to upgrade. To use the things that he has received from God to bless others because God knows the real joy is in that. The real joy is not in hoarding. The real joy is in sharing because God is good. And his people learn through God to be good. To be good. Which means that when we learn to give, we learn to give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver because God himself is a cheerful giver. Jesus was rich. He was young in a way of speaking because he's eternal. And he is a ruler. And yet Jesus gave it all up to serve us on the cross, to die for us. And yet he gained treasure everlasting. And so he could say to this man with credibility, come and follow me and I'll show you how to really be good. He could say that with credibility because he had done it. He gave it all up and found a treasure that was more true and lasting. The treasure of sharing with someone else what God has given you brothers and sisters the only way that we'll ever learn how to believe that truly in our hearts is if we become really convinced in all these fruits that first of all they are true of God and they are true of God directed to us you want to know about patience look at how patient God is with you if you don't believe he's patient with you go back again and think about it right go revisit that Uh, kindness You want to know what kindness is? God is kind. He's been kind to you. If you don't think he's kind to you, go rethink about it. Right? Goodness. You want to know about goodness? Look at God. And if you don't believe he's good, go reconsider because there's something you're missing. You're not factoring something in because he is patient, kind, and good. Thomas Boston, a a pastor in Scotland a couple hundred years ago, a few hundred years ago, said this. He wrote this down in one of his journals. If men knew my heart, I would not have four friends left in Scotland. You ever feel that way? That's that's kind of what it takes, right? To, To understand that. If people knew my heart, I wouldn't have many friends. And yet, when all the friends are gone, I've got a friend. Oh, do I have a friend. I have a friend with a capital F. The Lord Jesus has been my friend and is my friend. What patience. What kindness. Oh, what goodness, because he's my friend with joy. And listen, he wasn't joyful over me on my best day. He was joyful on me at the cross, which, of course, represents my worst. 
as my sins were placed on him by God the Father. If men knew my heart, I wouldn't have many friends. But God knows my heart thoroughly, and he is my friend. And God looks at his people and says, now go and be friends like that. By the way, I'm with you. I'm in you. I equip you 